guys, and welcome back to the Yes Means Yes podcast. My name is Faith Namshef, and I am the ARP Outreach and Counseling Coordinator. Um, I wanted to talk this week about ADHD, autism, and trauma is Chelsea Sparks, and I'm going to let her kind of go through and introduce herself. Hello, uh, my name is Chelsea, obviously, and I am a neurodivergent person. I feel like that's my biggest qualification uh, to be speaking. I'm a trauma survivor. Uh, I am the mother of two neurodivergent children, and I have a degree in psychology with a minor in sociology. I work as a case manager currently with trauma victims um, part-time, and then I advocate. I'm an activist and going to be starting my own uh, consulting uh, slash coaching and launching a website soon. So hopefully we can uh, get y'all information for that if anybody's interested. Um, that should be within the next few months, like a couple months, it should get started. So that's me. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Chelsea, so much for A, agreeing to join a podcast with us and B, agreeing to join our first ever live podcast. Um, I'm assuming that can be a little nerve wracking, but we appreciate it. And I think this is going to be an awesome learning experience for all of us. And maybe we'll ask them for, um, for some audience interaction at the end, which might be cool. So I'm going to let you go ahead and get started. Um, if you need me, you know, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I want to do my best here. Um, so, as, you know, looking over some of the questions that she wanted me to go over, first and foremost, what is uh, autism? What is ADHD? We all, I feel like, are aware of these uh, two disorders or neurotypes, um, but a lot of people have a lot of misinformation or misconceptions. So I wanted to just start and forgive this crudeness, but it's, it's helpful. So first I want to start with, uh, autism. So most people, and I'm going to draw this back on here a little bit. I'm using a dry erase. Most people think of autism linearly and any spectrum, uh, disorder, um, or condition that works across the spectrum. Some of this is bleeding through from the other side, but they think of it like this. Um, this is not how autism works, okay? It's not low functioning down here, high functioning, and you fall somewhere on a line. Um, that is a huge misconception and one of outdated information. One, uh, please uh, don't use functioning labels. Uh, low functioning, high functioning, these are not even terms that the DSM uses, um, and I don't the here high functioning and you fall somewhere on a line um, that and I don't the DSM is a really useful tool. I don't agree with everything in there. It is what we have to go by uh, for assessment, um, but it doesn't even use functioning labels um, of high functioning, low functioning, and they can be really harmful um, to our community because it assumes that someone who is high functioning doesn't need a lot of accommodation. They're fine. They're one of the lucky ones. Um, and there's a whole lot to unpack with even that, but I won't get into that, but in low, so it keeps high functioning people from getting a, adaptive, you know, and accommodating needs met. And it keeps 
low functioning people from having autonomy and dignity, um, low functioning. And it just completely disregards uh, everyone when we use those kind of terms. Um, the terms I like to use so far and they change, if I find better terms, I'm open to using them. Um, but uh, currently I use high support need, low support need in certain areas, which brings me to this other part of my thing, which is how this is still oversimplistic, but it gives us a framework to work with. So it's more like this. It's more of a color wheel. This is the spectrum. So you would have different uh, little pieces of the pie, right? So you have sensory needs, we have socializing, we have motor skills, proprioception, or where I am in space, can I feel my body? Uh, introception, noticing that I feel hungry, noticing that I have pain, uh, noticing that I need to go. Uh, noticing I'm hungry would be like introception, so your perception of what's going on internally. And if I'm going too fast, please tell me in the chat. I will slow my speech down. I get excited, but I can slow down if someone needs me to. Uh, cognitive flexibility. Um, so like, you know, stereotypically what we would think of as I like rules. I like things to be a certain way, how adaptable you are to changes in your routine. Um, executive function, which that one also goes along and overlaps with ADHD. Uh, special interests, the DSM talks about special interests. They label it as uh, fixations and repetitive behaviors, which they are, but it, everything's kind of framed through a negative pathologizing lens. And I don't prefer to use that. I don't think that it's the most helpful way. It can be, you know, a negative sometimes for us, just like any of us have, but it can also be a positive. And for us, we in the community, we just say those are our special interests. That this is my special interest. It's why I get so excited and I talk really fast and I fixate on it. Um, psychology and neurodivergence just became my special interest. Um, and then you have like verbal skills and slash communication. Um, and that's more when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about more of how well is someone nonverbal, limited verbal, uh, fully verbal? I obviously don't have a lot of trouble uh, articulating myself. Um, so I would be on the lower support needs for that. Uh, sensory needs, obviously noise, tactile, uh, clothes, um, smells, taste, like it, all your senses can be hypersensitive or hyposensitive. And that could be a whole wheel unto itself. Um, and that's what I meant by this is simplistic because this doesn't cover all traits. It doesn't cover all the thing, the nuance within those traits, um, but it gives us a framework. So I don't want anyone thinking linear, linearly anymore. When you hear autism, ADHD, um, think color wheel. So I'm gonna give you an example with, let's say my son who is considered more of the classic autism, moderate autism uh, is what we were told by his doctors. Um, so let's take his case, for example. 
P would be on verbal skills, communication. He has higher support needs on that. So he's gonna fall. If this goes low, I don't have any support needs out to, I need a lot of support. He's gonna fall right about there. And then sensorily, he wears headphones almost everywhere he goes. He has to be very comfortable somewhere for him to be able to take those off and feel like, you know, he, he's good. Um, but he's hypo-sensitive uh, with like temperature. He's run outside when he was a baby naked in the snow in our backyard. <laughs> and I was like, how are you not, like I had, of course I scooped him up very quickly, but I was like, how are you not, he didn't even have goosebumps because he was so hyposensitive to that. Um, so his sensory needs, he doesn't usually have a lot of meltdowns around sensory stuff though on occasion, but it's not a lot. So I would put him as right in the middle. Socializing, and this is a tricky thing because he loves to socialize. However, not everybody gets, gets him. So, you know, it's hard for him to connect with his peers but it's not due to him not wanting to connect, but they don't know how to connect with him. He doesn't know how to connect with them because they're operating in different operating systems, right? Uh, in their brain, their wiring is set up different. So they got to learn to communicate with one another, which makes it harder. So again, I'd put him a little lower because he the, the want is there. Uh, and then I'm going to hurry up here, but uh, proprioception. He loves to spin. That's a that's a higher support. He loves deep pressure because um, it helps him feel his body better. Introception. He's pretty good on that. Executive function. He's about right there. Cognitive flexibility. He needs a lot more support. He needs to know what's happening. Stemming. He's very. It's not really that he needs support needs for stemming, but he does stem a lot. That's his traits. So you would draw this. I know that's so crude, but can y'all see? That's where he falls on this spectrum. Whereas if you drew mine, mine would look very kind of similar in some ways, but it's very nuanced. Um, I actually have a harder time regulating uh, sensory needs than he does sometimes. Um, how we express or have a meltdown, how well we can mask also makes a big difference. Um, and for those who don't know what masking is, it's something that everybody needs to know because the thing I get the most as a neurodivergent person is you are? I never would have guessed you don't look like it. <laughs> It doesn't have a look. It doesn't have, we are not all a monolith. We are not, um, I don't represent all people uh, on the spectrum or the ADHD spectrum, you know, uh, but I do have a lot of experience and I live it uh, through me and my two children and my husband as well. Uh, we all fall along these spectrums, um, but, To say that I have no adaptive needs is, is false. I'm able to mask, but masking is where I am 
constantly having to divert energy towards appearing normal, appearing uh, not autistic, to make other people more comfortable um, and to have other people take me seriously. Whereas my son, he can't mask. He he's not he doesn't have the capability to do that like I do. And there's pros to him not being able to, and there's cons to him not being able to, just like there is for me. Um, but masking is not a huge blessing in some ways because it's exhausting. Um, when I'm having to have a conversation with someone, if I don't make, I'm constantly thinking, make eye contact, keep eye contact. Um, am I making too much eye contact? They just made a weird, like it's, it's exhausting to keep, don't stem, don't rock, don't, you know, you have to constantly keep those things in and in a world that is not set up for you. Uh, autism and ADHD both are disabilities. Yes. Um, they're also neurotypes. Um, they're neurodivergences. They're just not typical, but the world's set up by neurotypical people, holistic people. And so it is a disability because the world is very broad. It's set up to be very um, sensorily overloading. I mean, even some of my neurotypical friends have been like, God, I, I feel overstimulated half the time. Um, so you can imagine when you're, all your senses are either you know, a little bit below average or a little bit above average and picking up, it can be really disorienting. Um, and it's something that when people talk about, they really have to realize that pathologizing these neurotypes, you're pathologizing not a mental illness, you're pathologizing a person. You can't, that's why I go with um, identity first language. I don't say that, usually say that I'm a person with autism. I'm an autistic person. My son is an autistic person. I'm a, um, because I can't, you cannot extrapolate me from that or that from him. Uh, it's how we perceive reality. It's how our brains uh, make up our consciousness, just like yours does you. I can't, you know, take you away from what makes you up as a person. It's just that ours has been categorized as abnormal. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Um, so that's more of what I wanted to get across. I could go, like I told her, I could do a full hour just on that. But to touch on ADHD, ADHD is... Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. However, um, as most people in the community and even uh, experts like Dr. Russell Baker would tell you, it's kind of a misnomer. It, it's oversimplified. It is not just about attention. It, it really should be executive function disorder because that's what it affects the most. Um, it is a disorder that of motivation it is a disorder of timelineness um, and one that is highly misunderstood as well. You run on a dopamine deficiency, which is what everybody takes for granted. That's what makes you get up and do the thing. Just go clean your room. Just get up and go clean it. 
well, for someone with ADHD, that it's not just a matter of that. Um, your brain, your wiring gives you enough dopamine to kick on that motivation center and send you, get you up even begrudgingly to go do the thing you need to do. Whereas our brains don't make the dopamine to get that motivation reward center kicked on. And so we procrastinate or we get a task paralysis and we get overwhelmed by all the little details of a task. So going to clean my room isn't just, a lot of people see it as it's one task, clean the room. My brain immediately goes, it's picking up all the trash, all the laundry. Then I'll have to, to sweep and mop or I'll have to do the laundry and put up the laundry. And it, it just separates everything into a million different tasks. The brain gets overwhelmed. There's no dopamine flowing to try to like, you'll feel good once it's done. Well, logically, I know that, but the mechanisms just aren't set up to give me the same kind of reward. I, I run differently. Um, and it, it affects so much. Time blindness is where you, I'm going, I don't perceive time as well as someone else uh, might, especially not medicated. Um, if I'm like, oh yeah, I'll 15 minutes, I'll be out, I'll be there in 15. And then I get sidetracked over here. And to me, it's been five minutes, but I look at my watch, it's been 30 because I'm not perceiving how long it's been. And the, the reverse can be true. Um, so it affects so much more. And it also is a spectrum really of um, different symptoms or traits. Uh, but it also can be a benefit in its own ways of we are very, very creative thinkers. We spot both ASD and ADHD are what's called spiderweb thinkers. Uh, one, think of a you know little bubble of a thought and it gets connected all the way over here. That's why when I'm talking to people, they'll be talking about something like donuts and I'll, that will lead to this thought, which leads to this thought. Which leads, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, flat tires. Well, what, <laughs> how did that get from there to there? Because of how neurodivergent brains tend to think um, in that kind of, we jump from here to here, but that can sometimes be a benefit because we can think very quickly. Um, if it's something that's giving us a lot of dopamine, um, that's a really big benefit. We can come brainstorm forever. If you need ideas, you can go to a ADHD person. They will hook you up with tons of ideas on how to do something. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the general overview of ADHD. And if I think of anything else, I'll let you know so you can edit it in. <laughs> um, now, in terms of bringing it towards uh, sexual assault, trauma, my last capstone paper in college was on uh, neurodivergence and trauma. And I called it two interwoven threads because I, I truly believe that it is in a lot of ways. Um, I'm sure there are people out there who are neurodivergent who don't have trauma. I have yet to meet one of some sort, be it complex trauma, CPTSD, or uh, PTSD um, of some 
bearing sort. And there's a couple of reasons for, I believe that that is. Um, first and foremost, as I said, the world isn't kind of set up for us. There's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of misinformation. Um, either your condition gets minimized to where you're not taken seriously and called like ADHD or called lazy a lot or scatterbrained and you know, that, that's just not the case. Nobody wakes up and chooses to not have their motivation center working. Um, but so, I mean, being called those things from the time you're a child can be really traumatizing over time. You know, th those, those reinforced negative thought patterns get sent to a kid through their teens into adulthood. Um, also, because particularly with ADHD, because it's a dopamine deficiency, um, we are at, I believe, and I'll double check, but six times higher uh, the rate of substance abuse than someone without ADHD. And the reason for that is self-medicating. Um, when, even if you don't realize that that's what you're doing, when every time you take a drag off a cigarette, every time you take the first sip of alcohol or uh, snort something, inject something, it gives you dopamine and your brain feels good and happy. And it does for people who are, you know, the average person with average levels of dopamine, but imagine if you were starved for it, it's that high is gonna be that much higher. So we're more at risk for substance abuse, which as we all know, I'm sure most people here in the field know, substance abuse sets you up to be, a, to be victimized. Um, so it would follow that if you have ADHD, their impulsivity um, and that dopamine chasing sometimes can lead to us being at much higher risk um, for sexual assault, uh, interpersonal violence, uh, emotional abuse, um, both autism and ADHD people tend to be, um, can be overly trusting um, and that, and not pick up on certain cues or ignore certain cues because I really like you. So I'm gonna ignore all these red flags um, and, that all can just lead to trauma in itself. I think the educational system um, sets us up in the neurodivergent community because it is such a regimented way of learning. There's not a lot of room for uh, differences in how you learn. You're expected to sit eight hours in, in class. That doesn't work for ASD or ADHD very well. Um, Either you want to stem or you want to get up and move and your body just feels like it's gonna fly apart sometimes if you're on the more hyperactive end of the ADHD spectrum. So these, between education, the workforce, all these things end up leading to, uh, especially if you're undiagnosed and you don't know where your struggles are coming from, you're gonna internalize it and it's my fault, I'm not good enough. And those things compound like interest over time, which even further leads people down bad roads. 
Um, so there needs to be a lot more acceptance of these differences and believing people on these spectrums when they tell you, I'm not lazy, I'm not cold, I'm not, you know, all of these stereotypical things that we tend to have had portrayed in the media, because um, a lot of them aren't true. Um, so those things, I feel like, and there's a lot more than that, but on a basic level, contribute to us being more prone to trauma. I have some facts and figures that I'm gonna share with you. Um, where did it go? I had it in my notes, just one second. Uh, okay, so a report from the National Council on Disability finds that every three female undergrads with disability have been sexually assaulted. Uh, one of every three female undergrads. So it also reported that students with disabilities typically aren't even on the radar of colleges, um, their sexual assault programs. There's nothing geared towards reaching them and supporting them with their needs. And that goes for any disability. That's not just, um, that's not just ASD or ADHD, but they are of course included. And that's a scary thought that we're not on college campuses, a third of disabled people, women or female presenting are sexually assaulted and there's nothing, there's no resources and they're not even on the radar of the very limited sources that are already given, um, which sets them up to feel more isolated not wanting to come forward. Their needs aren't gonna be met anyways because everything's set up for a uh, typical average person um, without a disability. So it can feel very uh, lonely and isolating. And I think that's a really important uh, fact that we need to change uh, in our college campuses and schools in general everywhere, but particularly there. Um, so it also, the Bureau of Justice Statistics report uh, found that the total number of rape and sexual assault victimizations reported, of all of them reported, an estimated 69% were committed against people with multiple disability types. That is harrowing, um, which means that we are being targeted um, in a lot of ways, just people, and I'm speaking again of general disability, but uh, is easy to see when someone may not have uh, solid boundaries uh, because of trauma, because of masking, uh, because you're constantly just trying to fit in just because your survival, you feel like your survival socially or physically depends on keeping keeping it together. Uh, predators pick up on those kind of things. And also obviously physical disability is a very easy thing to see for someone in predators. Um, and it's showing in the statistics, 69%. That's insane. Um, when it comes to ADHD, as I said, you know, the, we're, 
a study by Jamie Snyder from in the Violence Against Women uh, journal in 2015, college women found that college women with ADHD experienced significantly higher rates of assault. And a lot of that is impulsivity. If someone's really charming and really nice to us and, you know, uh, narcissistic abuse, love bombing, oh, someone with ADHD will eat that up, male or female. Um, because it's when we fall in love or fall into fat, fatuation, all those neuro, you know, chemicals get released and the ones that we are more deficient on get released. So we, we react to it that much more strongly and we form attachment that much more strongly. Um, and so it can set up someone to be very, if they're not aware of that about themselves, to be much more susceptible uh, to that kind of abuse. And it's so insidious. Anyone who has ever been abused emotionally, psychologically by a narcissist knows it doesn't start out that way. It, it happens over time. And ADHD women are, I'm speaking of women particularly because that's what the study was uh, geared towards, but I'm sure for a lot of ADHD men, they uh, are higher risk for uh, going to jail for petty crime because they go out with their friends like oh it's a good idea to go spray paint the side of this whatever it's an impulsive not thinking it through type situation um and as we well know the prison system leads to all sorts of trauma and lifelong uh challenges and can actually set people up to come out worse than they went in um, and then you might come out with someone predatory, you know, it, it, there's so many webs that come off just from neurodivergence and disability of this sort of neurodevelopmental disability that sets us up for uh, being more at risk for trauma. Um, another Swedish twin study found uh, autism in females increase the risk of sexual assault by three times as much and ADHD double the risk. Um, there's a significant association between higher levels of autistic traits. So if someone shows a lot of traits of autism, but they don't have a formal diagnosis, that is still something that we as providers, we as um, mental health coaches, therapists, doctors, whatever your place is, um, we should all be on the lookout for because it's regardless of whether it's formally there or not, it's still a risk for this person. So if you're seeing these traits, then we need to focus our way of interacting with that person based off that and, and making sure that we are doing due diligence of research on the best practice to interact with that person and get them to see because Explaining it to them from a neurotypical point of view may not be the best way, even if they don't know that about themselves. Um, so it's just good to be to have some tips and tricks and uh, manner of going about things that you can shift and use, even if that person doesn't tell you, hey, I'm ADHD or I'm autistic. Well, if you're seeing it, you know, and you're, you're suspecting, there's no harm done in trying the things that would work for someone with those neurotypes 
um, in your in your practice, in your therapy, and uh, in your organizations. Um, childhood abuse, as we all know, leads to poor outcomes um, for so many things in adulthood. Uh, that is not just physical. That is not just physical. That's not just physical. I'll scream it from the rooftops. So much is more is placed on physical abuse of children as it should be placed is very obviously very important, but we miss so much trauma when we don't think that emotional abuse is abuse. It absolutely is. And people with autism and ADHD have a lower threshold for getting put into flight, flight freeze. Um, my biological response to um, my fight, flight, freeze is going to be bigger than the average person. Um, I'm going to have more of a physical reaction in my body. And if I don't know that about myself and I don't know what's happening, it's that much scarier. But it also, people are like, why are you so upset? Calm down, calm down. It's not that big of a deal. To you, this might not be a traumatic thing. To me, this, my nervous system internalized it as such and when you're a child and you have no frame of reference and your parents are not very supportive of um adaptive needs and they're they may have a stigma in their head against adhd and autism and so they never get you the supports you need you never learn that about yourself so again you internalize it as something's wrong with me i'm just not doing well enough to be normal um, and there's nothing wrong with that child. They need something different that doesn't make them less, that doesn't make them, uh, their needs special. I honestly don't care for the term special needs. I know that's a, that's a hot take, um, but I don't because it, my needs aren't special. They're not extra. It's what I, I deserve, what I need to survive and to thrive just as a neurotypical person deserves what they need to survive and thrive. It is not special, it is equitable. Um, equality is not the goal, equitable, equity is the goal. Um, and I feel like that gets lost in a lot, um, but it comes back to that childhood trauma over time uh, builds up and it also just absolutely uh, sets kids up that especially ones that get missed but not just the ones that diagnosis is only a part of the battle but we are more prone to having traumatic experiences and we are more at risk for childhood trauma because I don't perceive the world I don't understand the world in the same way you do. And if nobody around me is supportive of that or understanding of that, that's going to be traumatic for a child. The world's too bright, it's too loud. My clothes itch. Well, I bought you those clothes, wear them. It's not that loud in here. Will you just calm down? Oh, they're throwing a fit. Like it, it goes on and on. And we don't think of those things as abusive. And a lot of the times parents are well-meaning. They don't mean to do these things. They don't want to hurt their children, but some do. Um, and, but even if it's not 
meaning to, it still has the same impact. Our intent is really not what matters. The impact is what matters. I didn't mean to set him, you know, to talk to him like that. I didn't mean to yell at him. I didn't know it was a meltdown. Well, I understand, but the impact you're having is the same. So we still got to change it. You know, you can be, both things can be true. You could make a mistake as a parent and still uh, take accountability for harm caused and acknowledge that because it goes a long way. Um, I may be rambling here, but I think that the childhood trauma piece for a lot of neurodivergence is what leads to the assault later or can lead to bring it back to sexual assault and domestic violence. What happens over here is so important. So if we can get to more people earlier about better ways to parent um, kids in general, but particularly neurodivergent children and get them to a place where they don't see it through such a negative lens and they change their framework of how they look at their child's behaviors as communication. Um, you know, there's a saying that the toxic parent is one who views their child as a malicious adult. Um, children are not malicious little adults. They're not trying to uh, trigger our egos. They're not trying to make us mad, quite the opposite, but they may not have the tools of emotional regulation. They don't have the knowledge about themselves, about why they feel things so differently. And it all starts somewhere. And I really do believe that it starts there. And do you have any questions for me? I'm trying to figure out where I'm going next because uh, that was my main, my main point. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that this is getting to like a, you know, good closing point. Um, we do always ask this question on our podcast towards the end, um, just all of our guests. We ask them if they have a message to survivors of, you know, sexual violence, um, sexual assault, domestic violence. I know that's, I've read that as an optional question. I was like, oh, that's such a hard one. Uh, that your feelings are valid, that your journey is your own and how you process things is not right or wrong. It is morally neutral. Um, if you have a disability, that is neutral. Um, it does not make you less, and it's okay to advocate for those needs along your journey, um, and you can find a better way forward. You can find support. Um, there is a community for you, and some of us out there are really striving to make them more accessible. Awesome. Um, well, Chelsea, that is really all the questions that I had. Um, that I think we maybe didn't get to on our kind of like list of questions. I wanted to see now, is there anything specific you wanted to plug, um, you know, any information you wanna give out, resources, anything like that? Um, I was gonna give my email. Um, I haven't, like I said, I'm still working on a website for consulting and coaching, yeah. um, but if you want, uh, to book me to come speak to an organization, school, or for private parent, um, child, or anything of that nature, um, I'm going to give my uh, email, and you can email me, and I can get you put on the list for when I do 
launch everything uh, to get it scheduled. My email is sparks, S-P-A-R-K-S, Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at outlook.com. I can actually type it in the chat down here real quick. And for anyone who's listening on this podcast later, after um, it's premiered, I'm going to be putting that in the um, information box underneath um, with all of that. So if you also would like to reach out to Chelsea, you have that information as well. Just to just- I do get the website and everything going. I'll send it to you and you can send it out if you want to to anybody you know that might be interested. Yeah, no, and I'll definitely add that link once I get it back into the description too. As you can tell, I have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, we appreciate it. This has honestly been um, very informative and I feel like this is something that we don't hear about as much, especially in the sexual violence community, because I think it's so important to understand all of the intersections. Um, when I work with clients, I tell them, listen, I know you're coming to me and you're telling me that um, the reason you're here is to process trauma. However, you're not coming in here as a person who has had this single event happen to them, right? Mm -hmm. So there are so many layers and so many things to backtrack to before we can even get there because right. we're not humans with a single event, a single thing happened to us. We don't exist in a vacuum. <laughs> and intersectionality because, you know, when people of color, mm -hmm. uh, Black, Hispanic, Indigenous people, that intersection, if you put that with disability and with trauma or any of them, like, oh man, there's just so much. It's so hard to pack. I, that's why I talk so fast. It's so hard to pack all this into an hour because you could do an entire podcast on its own and barely scratch the surface, I'm sure, after 100 episodes. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's what I think, you know, we do try to do on the podcast. Like we've had people on talking about DHR. We've had people on talking about intimacy after an assault. Um, just trying to look at all of the aspects of it from legal to care to prevention, all, you know, there, there, there's so much I've been, you know, in this field for four and a half years now. And I feel like I'm always learning something new. Mm -hmm. I'm really having to learn how to condense all this information and all this research I've done over many years into like, you know, more bite-sized hour-long presentations. Some people want 30-minute presentations and whew, it, it's difficult to, to condense it, but I'm going to try <laughs> my best. Thank you for being a good guinea pig for me. Yes, no, of course, of course. And um, again, to our listeners, I'm going to put all that information in the box uh, below that goes with the podcast. If you want to reach out to Chelsea or want, you know, any of the resources that she also shares, I'll try and put those in there too. Um, I want to ask anyone who is currently on our live podcast recording, if you would like to ask Chelsea any questions that you feel comfortable going into the actual podcast that we're going to post places. Um, please feel free to put those in the chat to speak if you feel comfortable. Um, I will give you an option to obviously do one, ask questions later that are not recorded because I understand not everyone, you know, wants to be a podcast star. But yeah, I want to open the floor for that this time. I love questions. <laughs> so I have a question. 
Um, I uh, was wondering if you had any suggestions in regards to uh, being more client-centered language when saying special needs. Like, do you have alternatives to, to that? Because I totally understand um, the information that you gave us in regards to that. But I'm wondering, do you have suggestions? So it is um, definitely more equity. Um, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really hard subject because language is always changing. Um, it matters so much, the words that we use, um, and we all have to be open to adjusting. And again, there may be a better term out there than what I'm about to give you, but this is the best I have found so far. Um, it's one that I use for me and my children. Um, so I use adaptive needs instead of special needs um, for the most part, because it doesn't suggest that they're getting special treatment. Um, they're getting what they need baseline. We're getting what we need baseline to survive and thrive. So I would highly suggest using adaptive needs um, when talking about um, instead of low functioning or high functioning, um, you know, sensorily, this child is high support needs um, or low support needs. I know it seems like a small change, but it does make a big difference. And we should be using those more nuanced to that, you know, what we're talking about with that kid with uh, autism or ADHD. Um, because they may speak very well, but that doesn't mean that they don't have struggles in a neurotypical world. So um, high support needs, low support needs, try to be specific about where you're talking about with that child instead of just generalizing to all of their being. Um, and adaptive needs instead of special needs are my biggest recommendations. Hope that helps. Yes, it did. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We have time for maybe one more question. If anyone else is, um, has something they want to ask Chelsea? Oh, can I give a couple of resources? Yes, please do. Yes. So the, I don't, personally subscribe and I, I'm, there's no offense to anyone that does. I understand everybody's different. I don't personally uh, support Autism Speaks um, as an organization, um, but ones that I really uh, have found that, two that I've found that I really enjoy is the Autism Self-Advocacy Network. Um, it is made up of, the board's made up of, and it's run by people who this is our lived experience. And more than anything, listen to people, believe people when they tell you their lived experience, listen to autistic voices, listen to ADHD voices, believe their experience. And Autism Self-Advocacy Network is a wonderful resource uh, for information and further resources out from them. Um, really love them. And then Embrace Autism is a wonderful site that you can uh, do self-assessment. There's peer-reviewed uh, uh, self-report uh, quizzes like the Autism Quotient, which is a good one for adults, um, and several others on there that you can take. And you can actually 
set up for assessment online through them. And the doctor that came up with it is on the spectrum. So it, it's a wonderful tool and resource and they have a lot of information as well. And that's Embrace Autism. And, you know, uh, look, I'm hoping to be an extra resource for people um, in the North Alabama area. And yeah, that was it. Well, I want to thank you again, Chelsea, for joining us. Um, this was awesome. I'm so glad that we got to speak. I'm so glad that we were able to connect in an event and um, get to here today. Is there any, you know, closing thoughts you want to give or anything else? No, I think I'm, I think I've covered it as much as I can, but thank you so much for, uh, for having me. This was so awesome. I love getting to speak about it. It's, it's my passion in life is educating people. Nothing gives me greater joy than to answer people's questions and help them uh, reach their goals or goals with their uh, family or clients. So thank you so much. Yes, of course. Um, and well, we thank all of our listeners out there who are getting to listen to this, the ones who are here live with us and ones who are listening later. Um, and we will see you on our next podcast. Thank you. Thank you.